So today marks the beginning of Holy Week, which means, among other things, that this church will hold eight worship services over the next seven days. If nothing else, that tells us that this is one of the most sacred weeks in all of the Christian year. And one of the worship services we'll offer will, of course, be on Good Friday, when we remember Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion and his sacrifice for us. Now, over the years, I have participated in so many Good Friday worship services that, to be honest, some of them, you know, just sort of start to meld together. But one stands out above all the rest. It was about 10 years ago in another congregation. I participated in a Good Friday worship service that was very dramatic, and most of them are. This one began with the tolling of a bell 33 times, once for each year of Jesus' life. And then throughout the service, a series of candles was extinguished, and the lights in the sanctuary were gradually dimmed, and the creeping darkness was meant to represent Jesus' coming death, as well as the abandonment of Christ by his followers. But the most dramatic part of the whole service came when we remember the moment of Jesus' death. Dissonant bells sounded, and there was an enormous cross in the front of the chancel area, rugged with nails pounded in its outstretched arms and a crown of thorns set on the top. And as those bells sounded, we pulled an enormous black cloth over the top of the cross and covered it like it was a burial shroud. It was very striking, that image. And all of us then just took a moment. We were just looking at it in this deafening silence when all of a sudden a child cried out with this voice full of shock. Mommy, they killed him. Jesus died. And you could hear the intake of breath of hundreds and hundreds of people, followed by the sounds of some people beginning to cry. That child crying out like that seemed to make it all so real for us again, you know? It was as if we were experiencing Jesus' death for the very first time. Friends, during this Holy Week and every Holy Week, that's part of what we're called to do. We're called to walk through this entire week with Christ, to experience all of it, the agony and the betrayal and the death as if we are experiencing it the very first time, as if we do not know the news that next Sunday will bring. This, I think, is our final Lenten discipline, and I also think it's the most difficult. Not only because we tell ourselves we already know the story, we, we have it memorized, we can just sort of sleepwalk through it, that we know what next Sunday will bring, but also because it's just so difficult to make ourselves be emotionally present in it, to go through all of that agony, all of that pain, and yet, 
that is what we are asked to do. To experience this holy week as if we were a little child, seeing all of it unfold for the very first time. Now, ironically, the story begins with a parade of sorts. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and a colt. Now, don't get caught up in the physicality here. I've met lots of people who struggle with that. Matthew is focused on the symbolism, you see. He wants to make sure we understand that Jesus coming into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of prophecies in the book of Zechariah. Those prophecies say that a new shepherd king will emerge, will enter into Jerusalem in that way, and then will ascend the throne of David. That king, says Zechariah, will not be a military ruler, but one who brings peace. Unfortunately, the people just aren't that interested in peace. They are very interested in seeing some sort of leader emerge who will throw out the Roman occupiers. All of Israel is chafing under that occupation. The Romans were violent, they were cruel. The Hebrew people were terribly oppressed and they wanted it to end. They longed for liberation and they thought that maybe this Jesus, maybe this Jesus was that king, that military ruler who would throw the Romans out and ascend the throne of David and rule over a new golden age of Israel. So when Jesus entered the city that day, he received a hero's welcome. The people lined the streets. They threw their cloaks out on the road like they were rolling out a red carpet. And they waved palm branches over their heads and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it all turned so dark so threatening, so somber, so quickly. You see, Jesus knew, he felt it in his heart, that the Roman government and the religious authorities were conspiring against him to take him to the cross. He was a threat to both, you know. He was developing a following. He was saying things the religious elite did not like, but the Romans especially didn't like political rabble-rousers, people who might have a following and be a problem. And Jesus was fully aware that the way the Romans usually liked to deal with political dissidents was by executing them on a cross and then hanging them up for days in front of everyone as an example. Jesus knew his time was short. So when he gathered with his disciples in an upper room for a final Passover feast, every word, every gesture, every act was fraught with meaning. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, setting an example of servanthood. Then he gave them a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. 
And as they shared that Passover meal, he shocked them by departing from the ritual of it. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, this is shed for you. Remember me when you eat and drink this meal. And he did all of this in the presence of Judas, one of his closest companions, who he sensed would not hesitate to betray him, to sell him out to the Roman authorities for just a few pieces of silver. Now, things really begin to accelerate. It's off to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Gethsemane means olive press. An olive press is a device that crushes the ripe olives to release their fragrant oil. How appropriate. As Jesus' life will be crushed out of him in the hours to come. He takes with him to the garden three of his closest companions, Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, Stay awake with me, will you? Don't leave me. Stay awake while I pray. But they don't. Repeatedly, they fall asleep. Even in that hour of tremendous need by Christ, they just don't seem to be able to be fully present for him. So ultimately, he walks away from them a little bit in the garden, and alone now, he throws himself on the ground before God. And the scriptures tell us that he is sweating as if he is sweating blood. When I say that line to you each year, I am always struck by his humanity. Well, then he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I want, what you want. And in that moment, his fate is sealed because he has made the most fundamental choice any human being can ever make, the choice between faithfulness and self-preservation. Jesus has chosen faithfulness, and it will cost him his life. And oh, how ironic that over the next few hours, his companions will make the opposite choice. They will choose self-preservation. Even Peter, even Peter, who has said that he would die for Jesus, in the long run, they all abandon him. And he is led away and mocked and beaten and spat upon and hung on a cross to die on a hill virtually alone. And so, friends, if you were like me, the most excruciating part of this entire sinful, gruesome 
despicable affair is a sneaking suspicion that I have that I might have something to do with it. That I am not just some sort of arm's length observer. I remember the very first year I was asked to read Psalm 22 at a Good Friday worship service. It was at Sun Creek United Methodist Church in Allen, the very first church I served as an associate pastor. Up until that time, that task had fallen to our senior pastor, but she had died that year. So now the task fell to me. And I remember opening my Bible before the congregation and reading those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. And as I read that, I found the words drying up in my mouth. I found that I could barely raise my voice above a whisper as I felt the shame fall on me. As I realized that although I told myself over and over again that I would never abandon him, I would never leave him, that I loved him with my whole life, that I would never ever betray him, that in fact those things were lies, that I am a human being, and that I do not always love my brothers and sisters as he has loved me, and I do not always love God with my whole heart and my neighbor as myself, and that when presented with the choice a faithfulness or self-preservation, that I am fully capable of telling myself all kinds of nice things and then moving along and choosing me first. As surely, as Peter said, I tell you, I do not know the man. That moment was very hard and very painful and I have not ever forgotten it. But through the years, I have often remembered the words of a very good friend of mine, one of my oldest and dearest friends, who has suffered a lot of pain in her life. And she says that we cannot go around pain, that we can only go through it, but it is in the going through it that we learn and we grow. Friends, I believe that with my whole heart. You see, all of this is not meant to rub salt in the wound or beat us into the ground or drown us in guilt. No, we're asked to live fully into this holy week, to experience it all with Jesus so that we can remember again the great truth. That we can remember his incredible love for us. Because you see, Jesus knew 
everything about us. He knew who we are and what we think and what we do. He, he understood that we do betray him and one another and that we so often act in ways that are not loving and sometimes we even act as if we don't know what love is or what it costs and that when presented with the choice of him or us, we often choose us. And yet, none of that diminishes his love for us one bit. That is the miracle of Easter. That's the glory of it. That's the power of it, friends. Don't you see? Long before we were born, long before we ever turned away from him, he forgave us and he opened the door for full relationship with God. That is the whole story of this week. And that is the glory of Easter. So here is my prayer that we will all keep him company this week, that we'll watch with him in the garden, and that we'll walk that dusty road all the way to Golgotha, and we won't leave him alone there at the cross either, that we will be fully present in this week, that we will experience it like a child, seeing it unfold for the very first time, gasping when he dies and crying with joy when we realize that he loves us regardless. Will you pray with me? Most loving and gracious God, how can we thank you for coming to us in Jesus Christ and living our life and dying for our sake? Lord, fill us with hope as we live into this week, hard as it is, knowing that in the end, it is your great love that will triumph. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Friends, our invitation to Christian discipleship this week is to walk the whole journey with Christ to be fully present in it. If you can come and share the Seder meal and worship with us on Thursday and again on Friday, that's great. But even if you can't, get out your Bible, will you? Walk through the story in Holy Scripture. Read it all. Take it in. Pray over it. Let it go into your heart. Talk about it with friends and family. Live it this week. And I promise you, friends, you will come away truly appreciating what it means to have a Savior.